Uh, we're continuing our studies in Luke chapter 18, and uh, we come this morning to verse 9 through to 14. Now, they say confession is good for the soul, and I have a confession to make. I have preached this sermon before in uh, April 2016. That's before I came to the church, uh, but I was tempted uh, just to say nothing. And skip over it. And Gail said, don't flatter yourself. They'll never remember that sermon anyway. And, uh, and then I, one of the elders had um, told me during the week that he has a wide margin Bible. And he records every sermon that I preach in the margin. So I thought I'd better fess up uh, and tell you that. It is one of my favorite portions of scripture. Uh, and uh, I hope it's not old hat to you. This morning, those of you that were here, of course, in April 2016. That's before I came to the church, by the way. So Luke chapter 18, and we're reading from verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, this is one of the most familiar, most mistranslated, most instructive portions of the Word of God. Because here our our Lord gives us very important teaching on true and acceptable worship. You think of it, two men went up to the temple to pray, both engaged in prayer and both returned home believing that they had prayed. But only one had true dealings with God and his devotions that day and the other was rejected. And the sting in the tail is the one that was rejected was the one you would expect to be accepted and the one who was accepted would be the one that you would expect to be uh, rejected. And the reason... Uh, One was rejected was because he approached God in the wrong way and the other approached God in the right way. One approached God in his way and the other approached God in God's way. So we're going to look at this parable together. Very simple outline. Two men, two prayers and two outcomes. Two men, first of all. Look at verse uh, 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. By immediately we hear that this man was a Pharisee, uh, we conclude that he's going to be the, the villain of the peace after 2,000 years of accumulative influence on our culture. We know that Pharisees are proverbially bad. And when we hear the word Pharisee, all kinds of negative and damning associations flow into our minds. They are legalistic hypocrites. But that wouldn't have been the case in our Lord's day. For the Pharisee was the churchman. He was the Bible student. He was fundamentalist, the fundamentalist in his view of scripture. He was a model of holiness. He was an enthusiastic giver to all kinds of charitable causes. 
He was anti-abortion. He was part of the moral majority. He was the personification of consistent biblical religion in the eyes of everyone. Now the other man was a tax collector. And because tax collectors are usually pillars of the establishment, it comes as no great shock to us that um, God heard his prayer. But you see, a tax collector in New Testament times was corrupt and uh, was a collaborator. The Romans uh, auctioned off, uh, put out to tender the position of tax collector and employed the person who would take the lowest salary. And then they turned a blind eye when that individual engaged in overcharging or repetitive charging. So they were crooks, notorious crooks, and collaborating with the Roman enemy. If you think of some uh, provincial politician in France during the days of occupation uh, who makes himself rich by licking the boots of the Nazis, you'll get some idea of what people thought of tax collectors in the first century. They didn't just uh, snub them. Uh, They didn't just cross the road to avoid them. They didn't simply curse them in the street. They spat on them. And if they could have got away with it, they would have lynched them because they betrayed the people of God into the hands of the enemies of God. But it was the prayer of the tax collector that Jesus heard. So you have two men. That brings us to our second point, two prayers. Why was the prayer of one acceptable and the prayer of the other objected uh, are, are rejected. Well let's look first of all at the prayer of the Pharisee there in verses 11 uh, and 12. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. Do you notice anything interesting about that prayer? Anything unusual, anything peculiar about that prayer? If I asked you what prayer is, you would probably answer, maybe in, if you were super spiritual, in the terms of the acrostic acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving and supplication. If you were maybe just a recent convert, you would say, well, prayer is asking God, supplication. Well, do you notice that? In this prayer, he doesn't ask for anything. You notice that? And he doesn't ask uh, for anything because he doesn't feel his need of anything. He has no felt need before God. He congratulates himself on his spiritual and moral health, but he asks uh, for nothing. He doesn't ask for grace. He doesn't ask for mercy. He doesn't ask for forgiveness because he doesn't feel his need of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Now he was a sinner. Because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone stands in need of the forgiveness of God. But the point is he didn't feel it. He didn't sense it. He didn't realize it. He wasn't, as the Puritans said, uh, would say, a sensible sinner. He wasn't uh, sensitive to his sin. Now, he wasn't sensitive to his sin because he was playing little mind games with himself about his sin. He, he first of all, had an external view of sin. Do you notice that? 
Do you notice the uh, sins that he congratulates himself on not committing are external sins. He says, uh, I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers. So his view of sin was purely external. What about his unloving attitude towards the tax collector? What about his pride and congratulating himself publicly on his spiritual and moral health? You see, he had reduced um, sin to actual outward behavior and actual acts. And so rationalized to himself that he was okay, thank you very much. That he didn't need the forgiveness of, uh, of God. So he had an external view of sin. Secondly, he had a legalistic view of sin. You see that there uh, in verse um, uh, 11, um, or verse 12. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, all that I get. Now the Pharisees had a practice, institutionalized practice of fasting both on Mondays and Thursdays. The law of, require, uh, law of God required a fast once a year in the Day of Atonement. But they fasted twice a week. They tithed absolutely everything, even weighing out the very spices and herbs that they used in their garden and set aside a tenth for God. And somehow in his mind, he was thinking to himself that by going beyond what God required, he was compensating for his uh, moral failures. That uh, his idea was that God had this great set of moral skills. He put your good deeds in one side, your bad deeds in the other, and as long as the good outweighed the bad, you would be okay. That, uh, that these legalistic rules and regulations going beyond what God actually specified, what God actually required, were tipping the scales in his favour. And even in our postmodern anti-God world or anti-established religion world, uh, people think like that. They think to themselves, well, you know, if I'm kind to my neighbour, if I collect uh, for charity, that somehow that's uh, scoring me brownie points with God and it's uh, tipping the scales in my favour. It's quite illogical, of course. It's like going before the uh, judge and saying, yes, I did shoot my wife, but I want you to know that I have a, a licence for that gun. The, the two don't uh, cancel each other out. So he had a, an external view of sin, he had a legalistic view of sin, and he had a, a relative view of sin. Notice how he congratulates himself that he is not like other men, like this tax collector, for instance. He's not an extortioner, he's not uh, an adulterer, he's not unjust. And again, that's what people do to blind themselves to their own sin. They read of the worst possible examples of people in the tabloids and they feel justified in themselves about their own moral failures. I'm not as bad as him or I'm not as bad as her. 
So they love to read the scandal about um, uh, Prince Andrew or Britney Spears or, or somebody else because it, it gives them a sense of um, moral, superiority, moral superiority. I remember a number of years ago visiting in the prison and I was visiting this man who was in for multiple murder and uh, this other man came in and he says, we don't speak to him. And I says, why do you not speak to him? He says, oh, he's a paedophile. Uh, we are ODCs. And he says, what does ODC mean? And he says, we are ordinary decent criminals. Ordinary decent. Sin, sin is relative. Now this man was in need. He needed the forgiveness of God, as we all need the forgiveness of God. But he was playing these little mind games with himself to blind himself to his sin. So that's the, uh, the uh, prayers uh, of the prayer of the Pharisee. Secondly, notice the prayer of the tax collector. In contrast to the prayer of the Pharisee, this prayer is short, it's to the point, it's direct. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Spurgeon calls it a holy telegram. We would call it a holy WhatsApp, short and to the point. Notice three things about this. Notice, first of all, the humility that he displayed. Look at verse 13. We are told that the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice he stood afar off. He stood at a distance. We have got to ask ourselves, at a distance from what? But where is he? He's in the temple. What's significant about the temple? Well, right at the center of the temple is the Holy of Holies, where in the Old Testament, God uh, revealed himself. God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. That was his sacred space. God fills heaven and earth, but there he manifested his presence in a peculiar and an unusual way. So God is everywhere today, but Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. That he's with us when we meet together in a way that he isn't with us uh, when we're on our own. So he stands at a distance. He bows his head. He beats his breast. His whole posture is characterized by a, a deep sense of humility. He doesn't feel worthy to approach God. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that humility is the chief of all Christian graces. It is the hallmark of the true child of God. If you want to know if somebody's a, a true Christian, you look for that grace of humility. It's the very essence of the Christian position. What is the Christian position? That I have no confidence in myself, but I place my absolute confidence in God. And in contrast then to the a Pharisee who's strutting about like a proud peacock. He stands at a distance. He bows his head. He beats his breast. He's filled with deep, deep humility and contrition. So the humility he displayed. We need to realize that if we're going to get right with God, if we're going to be saved, that the only contribution that we make to our salvation is the sin that makes that salvation necessary. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. No contribution can be made on my part to secure my salvation. Humility. 
Secondly, notice the sin that he confessed. He said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, if we were to translate this as accurately as we could and as accurately as we should, uh, we would have to translate it in this way. God be merciful to me, this sinner. There's a definite article there in the Greek. He's not a sinner. He's this sinner. As he stands in the presence of God, he feels himself to be the foulest and filthiest individual that stood in the presence of God that day. It's a bit like the truth that Paul expressed when he described himself as the chief of sinners. Do you think Paul was the greatest sinner that ever lived? What about Adolf Hitler? What about Paul Pot? What about Edi Amin? What about Jihadi John? Were they not greater sinners than the Apostle Paul? And you say, well, Apostle Paul persecuted the church, persecuted Christians. Edi Amin et Christians. I think to argue like that's to miss the point. What he is saying is how he felt, he felt himself to be the foulest and the filthiest person in the world. And that's exactly what this man is saying. He's, he's acknowledging his sin. He's acknowledges, uh, acknowledging his indebtedness to God. He's acknowledging that he has failed in thought, word, and deed. That he has offended a holy God and he sees himself as a sinner. That's the first step to spiritual Recovery to admit that the Bible's diagnosis of you is actually true and you have sinned. And that can be a very painful experience, but it's a necessary experience to face up to who you are in God's sight. People wriggle and squirm and they seek to justify themselves and reject what God says about them, but until you reach the point that you can see your sin. You will never find the Savior. Jesus said it's not the healthy who need the doctor. It's the sick. The sick. Those who acknowledge their need. The humility he displayed. The sin that he confessed. And the mercy that he desired. He says God have mercy on me a sinner. Now again if we were to translate this as accurately as we could. And as accurately as we should. We would have to use an old English word that really has been phased out of a lot of the modern translations. And it's the word propitious. What he actually says is, God be propitious to me a sinner. Now Alex explained uh, to us what propitiation uh, is in uh, our, our recent study. Propitiation is a sacrificial word. It's a a turning away of the wrath of God so that it falls on something else or someone else. Um, When the Challenger space um, craft, you remember those horrific scenes uh, as it exploded, as it entered into the uh, Earth's atmosphere, the reason it exploded was because it overheated that some of the reflective, deflective, tiles were were missing and so the spacecraft overheated and exploded. Those tiles were known as propitiation tiles. That they deflected, they turned away the, the 
heat that was being generated. And so this man prays that God would turn away his legitimate anger for, for his sin and that it might fall on the sacrifice. Now you think of where this man is. He's in the temple. He's standing afar off from the revealed presence of God, from the Holy of Holies. But in between him and the Holy of Holies, there's an altar. And sacrifices were daily offered on that altar. Judaism was a bloody religion, and the blood of those sacrifices were flowing down over the altar. He could see the blood. He could smell the offering. He could um, uh, see the stains of the blood on the altar. And as he perhaps lifts his head, he cries out, God, be propitious to me. Pour out your wrath on that sacrifice. Count that sacrifice for my sin rather than me. Punish that sacrifice instead of me. And that's why this man was accepted. He came humbly. He came acknowledging his sin. And he came pleading the merits of the sacrifice. God, be propitious to me. Uh, a sinner. And if we're to approach God, that's how we must come. We must come humbly, acknowledging our failings, acknowledging our shortcomings, acknowledging our sin. And we must come pleading the final sacrifice, the great sacrifice, the sacrifice the Lord Jesus made on, the, uh, on Calvary's cross when he paid for sin. That's the way we must come. There's no other way to come. There's no other way that we can be forgiven and made right by, with God. But by coming humbly. Coming, uh, acknowledging our sin. And coming, pleading the merits of the death of Christ. That's God's appointed way. That's the way we must come. Have you come in that way? Have you humbled yourself before God and, and said, I'm worthless, I'm hopeless, I'm, I'm useless, I can't do anything to merit your favour towards me. I acknowledge to you that I am what you say I am. I'm a sinner from the uh, crown of my head to the sole of my feet. I come pleading Jesus. I believe that Jesus died for me, that he paid the price for my sin, that he's taken his, my sin away by his blood. That's the way you must come. Humbly, acknowledging your sin and pleading the sacrifice. That's why the Pharisee was rejected because he came in his own way, on his own terms, pleading his merit. That's why the tax collector was accepted because he came humbly, uh, confessing his sin, and pleading the sacrifice. Two men, two prayers, and two uh, outcomes. Look at the outcome as far as the Pharisee is concerned then in verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Now again, our translations aren't great here. What we actually read is the Pharisee standing by himself prayed to himself. He prayed to himself. God didn't accept it. God didn't regard it. 
God didn't hear it. His prayers began and ended with himself. God had nothing to say. God did not respond. Because his prayers were self-centered and so ended with himself. That was the outcome. The result as far as the Pharisee was concerned. But look at the outcome as far as the uh, tax collector is concerned in verse 14. I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now when we were uh, young people we were told that the definition of justification is just as if I'd never sinned. Just That is not justification. Justification is not just as if I'd never sinned. It's, it's a word that's borrowed from the law courts where the judge would uh, lower the gravel, bind the gravel, and he would say, innocent. And in this court of God, he declares his people to be righteous. He declares them not only forgiven, but he declares them to be righteous. It's, it's what Martin Luther called the great transaction. That when I believe in Jesus, my sin is imputed, counted to him, uh, punished in him, and my sin is taken away. But his righteousness is taken and credited to my account, and I am counted righteous because of him. That Christ not only died a substitutionary death to remove sin, he died a substitutionary life to declare us and to make us righteous. For he who knew no sin was made sin for us, Paul says at the end of um, 2 Corinthians 5. For he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says that Christ is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. That he gives us his righteousness. So that when you believe in Jesus, God looks at you through the righteousness of his son. He declares you to be righteous, as holy and pure as Jesus himself. Do you remember the, at the baptism of Jesus, that voice from heaven uh, announced, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He never sinned. He was holy in thought, word and conduct. Everything he did pleased the Father. He not only fulfilled the law, but he fulfilled the spirit of the law. He was absolutely perfect. And righteous. And when you become a believer in Jesus, that righteousness is transferred to your account. So it's not just as if I had never sinned, but it's just as if I'd always obeyed. Just as if I was like Jesus. That's what justification is. We sang it earlier. No condemnation, now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. 
had unclothed in his righteousness. Imagine you had fallen into great debt. A, a debt that you could never repay. That you could never remove. That in the gospel, God comes and he removes that debt. But not only does he remove that debt and take away that debt, he, he credits your account with a vast amount of money that you could never ever drain or never ever spend. That's what justification is. That you're clothed in his righteousness. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. My beauty are my glorious crest midst flaming worlds and these are red. With joy shall I lift up my head. Romans 1. For in the gospel a righteousness is revealed. A righteousness is given. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Isn't that wonderful? If you're a Christian this morning. In God's sight. It's not just that you're forgiven. Praise God that you are. But that in God's sight, you appear as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. It's what the theologians call double imputation. My sin to him, his righteousness to me. And if you're a Christian this morning, and you're battling and struggling with sin, and you're feeling so contaminated by the world and so unworthy even to come and worship him this morning you need to understand that in God's sight you're justified you're declared righteous in his sight now you think of it for a moment or two here are these um, two individuals and uh, one goes home believing that he did have an encounter with God but his prayers began and ended with himself. Because he didn't approach God in his way. The other uh, came humbly. He came confessing his sin. He came pleading the sacrifice. And he goes home, this great sinner that he was, this tax collector, as righteous, as pure, and as holy in God's sight as Jesus Christ himself. I want to ask you then, how are you going to go home? Are you going to go home justified? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are you trusting him? Have you admitted that you're, you're a sinner? And have you trusted in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice as the grounds of your acceptance before God? Then you go home as pure as fresh, as innocent, as holy in God's sight as Jesus Christ himself. Isn't that wonderful? Don't, don't let us soften the doctrine of justification. Let's not think of it just simply in terms of the forgiveness of our sin. Let us think of it as this declaration He's my son. She's my daughter. And they're righteous. Righteous. In my sight. Two men. Two prayers. Two outcomes. Amen.